welcome to the Socially Distant Craft Club Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Cockerell. Today is Wednesday, February the 17th, 2021. This is Season 2, Episode 1, titled, I Get the Picture, Part 1. In this two-part episode, I sit down with Brooklyn-based photographer Joe Shepard. We talk about why he got into photography, some of the struggles that he encountered when he was first starting, and some helpful tips for you if you would like to take better pictures as well. Something new for season two is a brand new segment called Tips and Tricks. You guessed it, we're going to talk about these little things that make a big difference to your crafting. So uh, for this week's episode, I'll be the guinea pig and I'm going to share first. So uh, we're going to be talking about dyeing yarn with Kool-Aid. If you've never done it, it's super fun. Uh, If you want to try it but don't know where to get started, this will be a good place. So stick around and enjoy Season 2, Episode 1 of the Socially Distant Craft Club Podcast. I grew up in a big family and like I was the kid that would want the edge of the bed up against the wall. And I would just like nuzzle myself in the corner, like so, face forward. <laughs> I'm picturing, was it like the Waltons where they're like, good night Earl, good night Ted, good night. But like, I'm picturing you in a, a family, almost like Willy Wonka, where like they had all the grandpas and grandmas and one big bed. It's like, like nine kids, one yeah. bed. Uh, I mean, you're not far off. We just weren't quite so wholesome about the whole circumstance. It was more like you are ruining my life. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, Joe Shepard, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. So I know you from the Performing Arts Project. You taking it way back. Um, Fast forward, how many years ago was that? I literally do not know. Um, I moved to New York in October of 2012, and it was the summer before that. So wow, summer of 2012. So I've known you for eight years. Yeah, yeah. nine years. Yeah, if I can nine. do math. That's I know, amazing. right? I don't even want to because this whole year has just been a wash. So Jeez. does it even count? Does it? I don't. I yeah. don't know. Counts more because we spent more time together. That's true. Yeah. That's true. This summer was so nice. We couldn't really go anywhere or do anything. So we would go to. Um, well, after I finally, con- I like to think that I had a-, a hand in this, but I convinced Joe to move to Brooklyn. And because otherwise, he uh, beforehand, he was, you were up in Harlem and you were, mm-hmm. but so then you moved to Brooklyn and mm-hmm. you saw me in McCarran. It was during like the first, like third of the pandemic so far. Um, <laughs> right. But um, I was sitting there like meditating like a hipster <laughs> and all of a sudden you and Joe are like, Hey, you like, wait a minute. That guy looks like Joe Shepard. What's he doing? <laughs> Meditating in McCarran Park. That's part of the course. <laughs> but no, we would go and hang out. And like every, McCarran Park, if you're not familiar with with Brooklyn, um, McCarran Park is in North Brooklyn. It's in like Williamsburg, Greenpoint, very, very like hipster epicenter. And mm-hmm. uh, when I was, I, I live in, in sort of more central Brooklyn now. Uh, but at the time I lived in Greenpoint and I would go past the park and I'm like this is where the beautiful people are Mm, these are the people that are like laying out with all their friends and everybody's pretty and they have picnics Mm -hmm. at on on a Tuesday at two in the afternoon all coordinating yeah and then you have some you know some guys over here meditating in the corner like like that's the kind of place that this is bicycle (laughs) right and then lo and behold I walk through 
And here's Joe Shepard, part of the pretty people, meditating. Oh. It was so funny. But no, so like what was what was happening during the pandemic was, uh, you know, everybody was stir crazy in March and April. And, mm-hmm. and then the weather was nice during the summer. And it was like life suddenly happened. But what I didn't get was people would go to the park and hang out and it would be really, really hot. Mm-hmm. And then about like 7.30 or 8, they would all like go home. And we were like, why are they doing that? The best mm-hmm. taco shop or the best taco truck in the world yes. is right here. Mm-hmm. And the weather is beautiful. So we just started having these like park hangs. And I would message like eight or nine people or whatever. And we would all have our bubble like six feet apart, have our blankets out and stuff. But we play music and mm-hmm. oh my gosh. It was the best. So mm-hmm. good. And we need to make sure and give that taco truck a shout out. Yes, yes. Okay. Latino Bistro. Latino Bistro. I always I always yeah. want to say Casa Latino for some reason. Yeah. Latino Bistro. Find them on Instagram. Yeah. They're always at the north part of McCarran Park. Mm-hmm. Um absolutely top notch. Well, they're a very interesting story too. Like, okay, so this is a taco truck that has like a guy standing outside of the taco truck and like welcoming you and taking your order and vibing with you and then turning to the guys in the truck and like giving your order. It's super, super like not fancy, but well put together. turns out their story to make it really short is they were some guys working on the Upper East Side, I believe, if I understood him correctly. They were working in like a, a restaurant and at the beginning of the pandemic, they were like, we can't collect unemployment. We got to make this work. Mm. And so what they did is they all band together as the kitchen of some like joint on the Upper East Side and said, let's get a taco truck and go to the place where we know they're going to buy our tacos. And so, of course, they go to Greenpoint and they are just like selling out just like like the best tacos I've ever had. And obviously you agree. Or to yeah, some and you're from Texas. So that's and, a... Yes. That absolutely. is a good endorsement. They, they put some kind of crack juice in there or something. I don't know what it is. Tacos, burritos, quesadillas. These guys are, like, I've never had Mexican food quite like this. It's mm-hmm. so, so good. And and you're exactly right. The The service that they give you is so nice. Like, they're, mm-hmm. they were even, like, all covered up with a mask and hat and, and coat and everything. The guy remembered me. Yeah. He's so friendly. Yeah. Luis is his name. Luis. Yeah. He even uh, delivered down to where I live now once, which is insane. <sighs> That's insane. Free delivery, right? By the way, yeah, we are doing such an advertisement. We are. <laughs> I'm not sponsored by this taco yeah. truck. I wish I was. Yeah. I wish they would give me free tacos. <laughs> so okay, so we've ta- <laughs> we've talked about tacos. We've yes. talked about the beautiful people. <laughs> Um, let's get back to you, Joe. So, sure. So I, I met you at the performing arts project as a dancer, as an actor, um, as a singer, Mm -hmm. but what are you doing these days? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, okay. Uh, yeah. So what I was doing before the pandemic was I was working at, um, a jazz club owned by the Lincoln Center, Jazz at Lincoln Center specifically, um, Witten Marsalis's um, sort of project that turned out really, really well. Um, yeah, I was I was a bartender there, and I I started working there very shortly after moving to New York, and so that kind of has been my New York experience. 
is um, before that I did catering for a very, very short period of time while I was doing a show at St. Luke's, um, a musical theater show um, with Harold Arlen's music produced by Harold Arlen's son. Um, very, very, like, I thought that was going to be my New York experience, just going and going and going. But I actually had met um, someone through the show. It was a, it was a, a fellow um, actress, actor. Um, and I told her, I was like, look, I'm tired of this catering thing on the side. I just, I want some kind of steady paycheck. And she's like, look, my jazz club is, is um interviewing people so I mean I can get you an interview if you'd like and turns out that's how you get hired in New York is you just know somebody who already works there because I didn't find this out until after working there for a while it's just like there's some kind of like like block for employers in New York that if there's not some sort of like weird connection they're just not going to hire you because mm. they have their options are endless um what is it they call like option paralysis or whatever it's just like right. they need some kind of like dumb reason to make a decision and that tends to be the the decision for or the deciding factor for a lot of people is like if you just know somebody that works there which is kind of like that's weird because I was so underqualified <laughs> well you know that's you're so so right not necessarily about being underqualified I'm sure you're <laughs> You're not that, but uh, God, you, you're terrible. To be a waiter. Um, so when I moved to New York, I did some freelancey things. And in fact, I I did a couple of um, temp jobs. I was thinking it was going to be like, oh yeah, go and like work in this office for like a week or two, and you know answer phones. Mm-hmm. No, it was like you have to wear catering gear, like black pants and white button-up shirt or whatever and i never did Mm -hmm. catering but there was this trade show like a violin trade show Mm -hmm. and i had i was working like coat check but for violins and so for all all day long like these people would bring in their instruments and they were priceless like Mm. thousands upon thousands of dollars and they wanted to bring their instrument with them and Mm -hmm. it was very clear you can't do that somebody could steal it it could get damaged, all this stuff. So you had to like check your instrument at the door. So we were having to like take these people's priceless instruments and then like tag them and, and they nobody wanted to do that. I think somebody actually ended up dropping a violin and breaking it. Thank God it wasn't me. Oh, but it was just like, I hope this isn't what I'm doing for the rest <laughs> of my, my New York experience. Potential disaster. But you're exactly right about knowing somebody. I, mm-hmm. um, I had messaged everybody that I knew that had any kind of New York connection. And it mm-hmm. turns out that my mentor in, in college and my advisor, Lenora uh, Hammonds, her best friend, Lana Garland, was she's a filmmaker, and her brother is Robert Garland, who is the resident choreographer at Dance Theater of Harlem. Oh, cool. And I had been playing some ballet classes in North Carolina mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, I didn't, re- I never studied how to play ballet piano. I just kind of played music that I thought was good, like some sort of classical type stuff, but mostly jazz standards and musical theater stuff. And I'd make things up, I'd improvise, and I, I would just try to do my best. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, they, they had brought me in for an interview, or I guess you'd say an audition. And I just played a company class. And so suddenly I am like going up to Harlem and I'm playing this class for a world-renowned professional ballet company, wow. not knowing at all what I'm doing. Uh, and it was a little bit rocky, but mm-hmm. but because I had that connection and because, you know, I was playing stuff that wasn't the same ballet music that they'd heard a thousand billion times, <laughs> I, you know, they kind of, they're like, all right, let, let, let's see what he's got. Did you play Toxic? Is that what it was? I didn't play Toxic that time. 
It might have been the second time. Yeah, Britney Spears Toxic. I, that's definitely a, a favorite for my uh, petite Allegros. Mm. I have to say, I was talking to Joyce, and she was like, I really want to go on the podcast with Joe Shepard and talk about ballet uh, stuff. And she's like, I maybe Joyce. I could like have a podcast where I talk <clears throat> about talk to other ballet pianists. And I'm like, Joyce, you might be the only one interested in that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think she should do it. She's so niche. I love Joyce, though. She's like, you know, my most artistic friend. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So you had that, that personal connection. That got you into mm-hmm. disease. Yeah. Um, and then I just lived there. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing about the service industry in New York is um, it's quite the trap. Um, I'm, I'm so, so thankful for the job. I was making more money than you I, that's I hesitate to say than you should because you do work hard it's just the disconnect between like it was weird to like talk to a table for like two exchanges and then have them tip me fifty dollars it was just it was bizarre but anyway um that was kind of the scenario there and that's what kept me there it was just the golden handcuffs of the service industry is you're making all this money which you're not used to say like if your job was catering before that and um so yeah i was there and also it was a great 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 environment it was just so beautiful the the people were beautiful the the entire staff was made up of actors dancers whatever like um super fun people that were you know more interested in having a good time than being just stuffy and mean and and cutthroat um and also i mean the live jazz that i got to see like that was something that kind of like i would forget about it really easily was just like oh wait like i'm surrounded by art while i'm working like wow and i did you know what i mean like and i'm also i have instant access to like the best jazz musicians in the world i stayed there for you know the the money and the beautiful community and 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 like the service industry it eats your life away um so I kind of was distracted away from other potentials artistically. Um, but I think that's kind of good. I think that I think that obstacles in life kind of steer you a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, that, that was kind of the situation until the pandemic. And in the pandemic, it was like it was a whole different shift. It, it kind of in a in a way was relieving for sure, obviously, because rest you have to that was kind of the message of the beginning of the pandemic which a lot of other people i'm sure saw it a lot more negatively um for right reason um but for me it was like i don't know the two feelings that i got was you have to rest and also you have no family (laughs) new york family you know what i mean because the people that i saw you know four days out of the week 10 hours at a time though it was just like all of a sudden I didn't see them regularly, wow. you know? It was bizarre. Oh my god, Really, really bizarre. If I had still been playing for ballet classes and being ballet pianist full-time, uh, this would be... First off, I don't think this podcast would have ever happened. I right. wouldn't have had the stability <clears throat> and the the wherewithal to be able to, to even organize something like this. Mm-hmm. I had made a shift to teaching. Uh, that was something I, I really found myself enjoying mm-hmm. i mean i had done a lot of music directing and i like i like teaching music especially to um people who who want to do it i mean nobody wants to go in there and teach something to people who, who hate it and who don't want to do it but uh i think maybe there's some weird person out there that likes to be mean but <laughs> i would find myself in like whether it was a college environment or high school or something being the music director for a um 
for a musical. And it was so mm-hmm. cool. I had like the star power. I wasn't their normal teacher. I would come <clears throat> in in the afternoons and I could do silly things with them mm-hmm. and I could teach them this music. And I, I had like a certain amount of celebrity in that thing, nice. which is um, really embarrassing when I um, speak that out loud. Like, oh yeah, yeah, high school kids loved me. I was so <laughs> cool. um, But it wasn't... Cool. Yeah. It was, it, there was a certain amount of like, okay, this is not really what I thought that I would yeah. like doing, but mm. it's actually, they're kind of like little people. Yeah. They're like normal people with personalities and they can be fun and I'm like, wow, who knew? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I had just been doing freelance stuff and music directing or um, accompanying ballet classes, suddenly there's no ballet classes. I would have been absolutely, you know, just, mm. just out to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had, yeah. I had shifted to a full-time teaching job and I'm so, so, so thankful. I've got a great school. I'm the head of the music department. So I'm really pleased with how that went, mm-hmm. but you're exactly right. All of a sudden mm. people found that they had no community. And at least I had mm-hmm. my school, we were still meeting, whether we were online or a hybrid thing, I was still able to have connections with them. Yeah. But yeah. it's so important to have people, whether it's, you know, if it's not local in some way, online even. Mm. Uh, that's one thing that we talked about a lot with with Katri when she was in the episode was the, the Socially Distant Craft Club, was all of a sudden everybody was at home. And there was... Like you, you couldn't go out. You couldn't talk to people. Like you couldn't have your friends over. So what did you do? So for for people like her, she was living alone. Um, I th- I think she was alone in Hamburg at the time. But she was like, it was such a a nice connection to be able to, um, to be able to see other people and interact with other people, even though it was just a Facebook group. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that you can dye yarn with Kool-Aid? Oh yeah. All you need is Kool-Aid, a pot, some water, and your stove. Now before I get into it, I do want to address probably the number one question that I get is, doesn't it wash out? Like when people are in middle school and their mom lets them dye their hair with Kool-Aid and then it just washes out the next day, I'm here to tell you that with a little bit of understanding of the science behind it, you'll know exactly how to dye your yarn with Kool-Aid so that it's mostly permanent. So the first thing that we got to talk about is our supplies. If you're going to dye yarn with Kool-Aid, the most important thing is you have to make sure that the yarn you have is a protein-based fiber, meaning your yarn comes from a protein that is like an animal fiber something like wool or alpaca. Angora works because that's like bunny fiber. Now there are a couple of weird things out there that also do work. Certain kinds of synthetics like I believe rayon or if you see something that says polyamide, that tends to work. Things to stay away from. Acrylic will not work. It might take on a little bit of a of a color for a minute, but that's more of a stain. Acrylic, you cannot dye with Kool-Aid. Also, cellulose fibers, you cannot dye. Those are fibers that are plant-based. Something like cotton or bamboo, you can't do. But again, protein-based fibers, you can dye silk, you can dye wool, you can dye alpaca, 
You can dye Vicuña if you want to. I'm not sure that I would dye Vicuña with Kool-Aid, but that's neither here nor there. So we've got that sorted. You've got your 100% wool yarn and you're ready to go. Well, not so fast. We need to also talk about some of the basic things that we need to dye yarn in general. So obviously you need yarn and you have that. So way to go you. The next thing you need is dye. Since we're using Kool-Aid, thankfully, that has enough dye to dye a horse a completely different color. That's what makes your red Kool-Aid red and your orange Kool-Aid orange and your purple Kool-Aid purple. The other thing you're gonna need is acid. Now, before you start freaking out, you should look at the back of that Kool-Aid packet. It contains a healthy dose of citric acid. Citric acid is gonna be the thing that helps the dye particles bind to the fiber. So way to go, it's already in the package. Now this is why you were able to stain your hair, pink and blue and orange, but the missing secret ingredient to make it last is heat. Now, if you had dyed your hair and then ironed it, maybe put foils around it and steam set it, then it might have become permanent. We're not gonna do it that way though. We're gonna put ours in a pot and we're gonna add water to it because that's gonna help the dye to move around. The more water, the more the dye can move around. The less water, the less it can move around. So depends on how you want to dye your yarn. Now, if you just throw the yarn in a pot with water, there's a huge chance it's gonna tangle and the yarn's not gonna, the dye's not gonna be able to go to all the different parts of the yarn that you want it to. So what you're gonna wanna do is tie figure eight ties. I would highly recommend going on YouTube and seeing somebody do this. You might want to use a nitty knotty, that's spelled N-I-D-D-Y, N-O-D-D-Y or the back of a chair to wrap it up into a hank, which is basically one big continuous loop of yarn. And then you put those figure eight ties several places around your loop. I'd say about four to five different places. This way, your yarn's not gonna be a big tangled mess when you put it in the water and you sort of stir it around a little. Trust me on this one. So the basic process is you Put it in the pot with water. You let it very slowly heat up. You don't want it to be boiling. Steaming is okay, but boiling is kind of not what you want. And when you're ready to add the, the color, you just open up your Kool-Aid packet and dump it in. Now I would use the little rectangular ones that are thin that don't have the sugar in it because there's sugar would only make it gummy and gooey and you don't want that in your yarn. It would be like pouring maple syrup on your scarf. Like, that's not a good look. So with your little Kool-Aid packets in hand, go, have fun, throw it in the dye pot. Let it sit, let it hang out there for a while. You can use all one color, you can use different colors. Just keep in mind how those colors might mix and blend together. And if you want a really foolproof way of doing this, use a crock pot. It's not gonna get super duper hot, so it's gonna ruin your yarn. It's gonna be nice and slow. It's gonna be a safe temperature. And on top of that, 
it's really gonna give you space to play. And once you put your dye in there, you can turn it off and let it slowly cool down. You can even add a little bit of vinegar if you want to add a bit more acid to make sure that the dye is gonna set. So once everything is kind of absorbed in the yarn, and once your water is cool and you can handle it, you can give your yarn a gentle rinse, let it dry and wind it up and you're ready to use it. And that's how you dye yarn with Kool-Aid. There, it's, it's weird because there is a positive aspect to the internet socially, which is kind of like not a thing that people say these days, but it, there really is. And I, I kind of first noticed this when I started seeing friends of mine that would, I know it's so funny, like share their opinion on the, on social media. Like just, it was like back when people would just make, you know, random statements on Facebook. And I had like, a ham sandwich today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or just like, or their opinion politically, like, honestly, mm. I'm gonna say something weird, but like, and it was for me, the thing that stuck out to me was it was like a lot of the people that were saying that were like people that were usually like shy in person and mm. maybe people that suffered from social anxiety and people who weren't sh used to sharing their opinion and they needed some kind of like soft introduction to speaking their mind. You know what I mean? And that was that's something that kind of I still look at when I see all of the, the negative aspects of social media that everyone talks about these days. Because, you know, the, the Twitter world of just people dunking on each other and trying to get the last word in and trying to be the most clever. It's like, yeah, but like there also are people that like never would have shared their opinion that kind of got a soft introduction to sharing their opinion. And hopefully that encourages them that there's like a better way of doing this person to person to sort of shamelessly be like, here's who I am, like take it or leave it, you know? I'm so glad that you, you're like, I've got, I've got all these bullet points, by the way, and he's, he's like, just kind of, I, I'm talking to you, listener, I'm not talking to Joe Shepard, <laughs> dear listener, um, and he's like going right through my bullet points, like, perfectly, it's oh. really great. Uh, so, so you started out as an actor and a dancer, and then after this whole pandemic thing, mm -hmm. there was a shift, and, yeah. and that sucks, yeah. but there is some good that comes out of it. Um, you're doing a lot of photography these days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about that, but also this idea of of um, sort of the people being able to speak up, people being able to assert themselves in a way that maybe they didn't think that they could before. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to ask you about this kind of gatekeeping, this idea of gatekeeping. Yes. Um, but before I get there, I want to kind of circle back to the photography thing. Why... Hmm photography like how how did that come about um i mean one of the big things of like being an actor in new york is you just want to get work <laughs> you know what i mean you just want what do i gotta do to get work um and uh i was kind of before the pandemic living in this world of like applying to student films and and submitting to student films and wanting to audition for them and things like that and um, basically what that is is it's kids in college just recording things for like class projects and stuff like that and so I kind of in my mind I think I'm an actor who went to university for acting and then dance and then moved to New York and went to conservatory for acting and I'm thinking oh like I'm kind of an ideal candidate for some student like sure like it seems like no questions asked 
he'll be fine kind of thing. But a lot of times in New York, even those particular projects have a requirement of like having a, a reel or some sort of like footage of yourself on tape. <clears throat> and for me, there was a part of me that was just kind of like, that seems so silly, right? Like, I feel like I'm doing this project to gain material of myself. Why do I have to create material for you? Like, it seems like we're already mutually benefiting each other. Why are you creating this barrier for me? Anyway, so that kind of made me think, what what can I do to get closer and closer to getting footage of myself that doesn't involve me having to like make myself appealing to somebody? And that first I was like, okay, I know sound design, generally speaking. I went to, um, <clears throat> I took a, like a six month course on uh, music production when I, when I first started working at the jazz club and had like actual cash. Um, and so I kind of had an understanding of that and what it meant to produce sound. Um, and so I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, let me learn how to be a sound guy. You know, like whatever, maybe that, maybe I can work on sets. And then that means eventually I could be in front of the camera. <clears throat> and, um, after I like re like kind of, I took an online course regarding sound for film. <clears throat> I realized just how easy it was for me. And then I started thinking, I mean, like, why don't I learn video? Like, why don't I learn how to record in, in you know, in cinematography generally. <clears throat> and so I took, a well, first I just started YouTubing. Um, I found this this guy on YouTube that was really, really smart and, and also very accessible. And I was like, I think I could do that too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so then I was like, yeah, but if I'm going to invest in a camera, because cameras can get pretty expensive. I was like, I want this to benefit me to the max. And so then I just started thinking about how I've always <clears throat> wanted to tell stories visually. You know, anybody has these like pictures in their head of things that they just want done. Mm -hmm. They want it caught. They want it captured. Um, I mean, it goes as far back to me being in musical theater, you know, in community musical theater, and just like being astonished at what you can accomplish with a few set pieces. Yeah. Just being like, how did we make this so beautiful? How can like some like suburban kid, you know, come and sit in a seat and get exposed to this in person? It's amazing. Um, so yeah, that just kind of made me kind of visually obsessed. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just, I kind of found, I found myself kind of benefiting myself, not only practically as an actor and being able to record myself, but also I was like, I can take some cool pictures. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. I was like, I want to be able to take great pictures that are meaningful to me, that I can execute the things that I've learned, say from dance and, um, and, and theater and, and end up like the, the acting work that I did in conservatory and just kind of compiling those and figuring out how to just make something, you know? So all of this came about as a product of you wanting to market yourself as an actor and as a dancer. Or did or were you more were you interested in photography beforehand? Like, were you had you been taking photos and stuff? Um, you know, <laughs> that's the funny thing is that when people ask me this question, I tend to lie. Big time. <laughs> so, no lying here. This no is the lying truth, here. So. Yeah, no. I, lie, I think I think I need I need the catharsis of telling someone the truth for once. Um, <laughs> regard regarding this subject. No. Um, Go on, my child. Yeah. <laughs> no one's listening. Um, no. Uh, I've had several people ask me this question, and my answer has always been like, 
Um, yeah, I've always like taken pictures like with my phone and wanted to take the deep dive with like buying, a p- investing in a picture, and I've always like visualized and studied photography. No, that's bullshit. <laughs> um, I I I ha- I I can very clearly say I have been visually obsessed. Just being in a theater ever since high school, like whenever I was happy, you know, and 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 acknowledging the moments that made me happy. Um, on stage or watching rehearsals and things like that and just what was so visually pleasing to me regarding that. But as far as photography was current concerned, I never connected those dots. Yeah. I never connected those dots. I was never like, oh, I like the, the way things look and are composed and, and say if it's dance, the way that things are staged. Like I was never like, I should look into photography. <laughs> no, um, it was it was more so photography just became a thing of, I had to multiply the benefits of investing in a camera at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and I couldn't just jump off the deep end and start making short films. Yeah. Cause that requires a lot of moving parts. And so I was like, no, what is the thing I can do tomorrow if I were to buy a camera? And it was, you can take pictures. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And I, I, I employed everything that I learned in conservatory and what I learned in dance, like in, in um, acting conservatory, a lot of the things that you, you learn about is just the composition or the, the um, schematicizing a moment. Schematicizing a moment. Yeah, that's um. I'm so I'm Meisner trained, and so that's kind of like, I don't know the re- uh, uh, all other acting techniques, but that's what stuck out to me about Meisner is it, it's about the moment and what is involved in the moment and what makes the moment meaningful and what are all those parts and how do you accent accentuate them? Can you break that <clears throat> down for an idiot like me? Like, <laughs> give me an example of how yeah. you would schematize a moment. I mean, and it's I'm an idiot too, so this will be easy. Um. <laughs> so, uh, if you're watching a, a, a moment in a play, um, usually there are some components involved. Say there is a relationship on stage. There are, okay. two, there are two or more people on stage together, and there's a relationship. And that relationship is meaningful based off of who these people are and what they represent. A mother and a son. We already know the number of things that could take place just because we know that a mother and son are on stage together Mm. and it could play out pretty logically or it could play out different than what we would expect and that will stick out to us and then we'll have a story you know what i mean ah so if you're looking like the golden girls for instance if you have dorothy and (laughs) sophia you know that there's a huge chance that you know sophia is going to make some wisecrack about how ugly dorothy is and then there's a chance that Dorothy's <laughs> going to make some kind of wise crack about anybody else just because that's who they are. And then Dorothy's going to go, oh, Ma, I love you. And she's like, you know, this going to be... The, but you're saying that there might be an interesting story to tell if it deviates from the norm. Sure. I mean, that's Possibly. that's one way of telling a story. Um, right. it, but for me, just like for the sake of clarifying, schematizing a moment, relationship is a big factor. Okay. Um, circumstance is a big factor mm. uh, what what is it that informs the viewer of the circumstance without you having to explain it to them uh-huh. what what like it's snowing outside we already know potential moments that could take place based off of it snowing outside you know seems pretty calm serene um, I don't know I, if we saw a couple out in the snow together, we probably have an idea of what they're experiencing together. That's a moment, right? Mm-hmm. So that's 
that's kind of those are those are two specific components i mean it, it they're it just the, the list continues as far as like what you could do to create a moment but as far as me as a photographer it's like it's it's what's in front of you that you start identifying and then just organizing if that makes sense so like i'm walking down the street it's snowing and i see a couple i'm like cool so i have a feeling as to what this moment means whether it means that for them or not so let me figure out how to further that narrative based off of how i frame them up mm. that makes sense okay i'm getting a little you know artsy fartsy but all right artsy fartsy If you like what you hear and you want to keep this podcast going, consider becoming a monthly sponsor today. It doesn't cost very much, and you can quit whenever you want to. You decide whether you want to donate 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. For more information, click on the link in the description or go to anchor.fm slash socially distant craft club slash support. This is where we actually get the good stuff. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. One and a half glasses of Pinot Grigio. Or is this Chardonnay? Chardonnay. Does, I know. Chardonnay. Eight, eight bucks. Can't go wrong. Mm. So, Joe Shepard. Yes. Um, <laughs> we're talking about, we were talking about gatekeeping. So yeah, yeah. I want to talk about gatekeeping <clears throat> versus imposter syndrome. Now, okay. do you, do you know what imposter syndrome is? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, if you're listening at home and you're not sure, imposter syndrome is, uh, it's that little voice inside you that says, you're not a real artist. You're not a musician. You don't, you're not a photographer. Um, and, and that, in my opinion, is the single most detrimental thing that, that can exist in a would-be artist or craftsperson's head is this imposter syndrome that you're not good enough. You don't somehow have the, um, the credentials to do the thing. And gatekeeping, if you're not sure what that is, is somebody, it's like an external person that says, no, unless you do X, Y, Z, unless you studied at this school, unless you have done this or that or the other, then you're not really legit. Okay. So it's kind of like an internal versus external version of you're not good enough. Right. Um, when you started as a photographer now that you finally set the record straight quit <laughs> quit your vicious vicious lies yeah. you told so you bought this camera uh to be a filmmaker and then you started taking sure. photos did you experience either of these did you experience any gatekeeping or did you experience any imposter syndrome when you were starting out oh sure i mean uh, no one would ever in i mean some people would but i think rarely would an artistic person purposefully be a gatekeeper or rather intentionally be a gatekeeper, mm. but it happens very easily by accident if you're not conscientious. <clears throat> um, I, I mean, obviously wouldn't name names, but there, there are a lot of people that you, when you want to do something, you're obviously going to reach out to the people that you have access to. And a lot of times you'll get a lot of love and a lot of encouragement, <clears throat> but sometimes you'll encounter somebody that's self-conscious and they kind of want to be the person that does that thing in mm -hmm. your friend circle or whatever. And they're a little offended at the presumptuousness of you to think that you could do the thing that they do just mm -hmm. suddenly. You know, like me, a dancer, actor, 
what right do I have to take an interest in cameras? You know, that's my thing. That's my thing. I'm the expert in that. You should come to me to do that thing for you, not help you become that thing. You know, mm. um, <clears throat> and it just it happens. You know, people people they're they're self conscious. You know that that sort of thing you'll encounter, and then with the the imposter syndrome. The, the, here's the funny thing about that is that like, as far as stages are concerned, I feel like imposter syndrome comes in a little later in development as an artist or Mm -hmm. a crafter, because that's still what I consider myself with photography is a crafter is it's just like in the beginning, you're like, you're fascinated. You can just click a button and get something on camera. You know, it's like, oh my God, I'm a part of the magic, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I can put the person here in the frame, rather here in the frame, or I can like change the focal length of the lens and all of a sudden it's a totally different story and you're just, everything's just rainbows and sunshine and (laughs) you can just make all of these beautiful things and be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you start to realize the distance between you and the accomplished people, like the people that are really good at this, that have been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. And in between that is when you encounter the gatekeeper, I think. The gatekeeper sees you running around happy and in rainbows and sunshine, and they're kind of mad that you're still excited and exuberant about this thing while they're in the stage of um, imposter syndrome. They're in this stage Mm -hmm. of self-hatred and thinking that they're a fraud because they realized there's a lot of proficiency that they haven't reached yet. They They haven't gotten good at enough and so now all they can look at is all the things that they need to check off the list to feel like they, what is it? Um, I think it was Ira Glass said it once. It was just like, at some point you acquire a sense of taste and it's your biggest destruction because all of a sudden you've developed an expectation for the thing that you're doing that exceeds your ability. Ooh. And it's like, you just got to get over that. You just got to get over that. Champagne you... taste on a beer <clears throat> budget. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I like that. That's good. I yeah. and I think that there's just I think you I I'm not sure what the solution is in that scenario. I think a little bit of it is is just lighten up. You know, a little frivolity. We were talking about this before yeah. the podcast is just relax, dude. It's not that serious. You don't have to be the LeBron James of what you're doing. Like yeah. just enjoy what's right in front of you. Enjoy that you have a small accomplishment that you can make tomorrow and just love that. It's funny yeah. how how often. Well, that's not really what I want. What I want to say. Oh. It's funny how much that sentiment rings true in so many different contexts. Like when I'm teaching voice lessons or vocal coaching or music directing or whatever, and and especially especially when I have somebody who's unconfident, like a hmm. 14, 15 year old girl in a school play. You know, it's extremely rare for me to be in a position, and if it's in my power, I won't choose this. I mean, I've had a situation where I had to go and assist a a musical that was already cast and put up, and it was like Mm -hmm. too late to do anything, and they had put this girl in a kind of an impossible uh, situation, singing a song. Mm -hmm. She couldn't sing. It was out of her range, and they Mm -hmm. had made no accommodation for her, bless her heart. (laughs) Yeah, but if it's in my power, Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna put somebody up on stage and, and set them up to fail. Yeah. You will have mishaps along the way. That does happen, but I'm not going to do that. But what yeah. happens a lot of times is people get, they psych themselves out. Yeah. And I think with singing, it's so apparent because you are producing everything. Yeah. Like, I yeah. mean, if you're nervous, you can still 
press a button on a camera. You can still play mm-hmm. piano. It's mm-hmm. there's a disconnect, but with singing, there's it, you know, there's such a physical connection to yeah. your your state of being and and physically being able to perform. Mm-hmm. But that's my mantra is it's not that serious. Yeah. And so yeah. for opening night, I just have everybody repeat that it's not that serious. It's and not that serious. Yeah. there is a moment that I found when I was accompanying ballet. I would go in, you know, and, and keep in mind, I started out knowing nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I had known what I didn't know, I would have there's no way I would have accepted the job. I would be like, absolutely not. <laughs> if I had known all the stuff that I didn't know, but I yeah. was, thankfully, I was I was really, really ignorant. And I just went in there with a good attitude and willing to just do my best. And, and mm-hmm. that goes a pretty far away. But um, even with that, after I had reached a point where I was like, wow, I am actually <clears throat> making a living in New York City as a professional pianist yeah. playing for professional ballet companies scared out of my mind. I would go into some classes knowing that the teacher was like tough. Uh, And a lot of it I've kind of suspected at the time, but also realized now a lot of it had nothing to do with me. It was just them not being able to communicate to a musician and being like wrapped up in this sort of egotistical diva thing. So people could just be mean, but there's a lot of it of me not being good as good as I wanted to be. And there was one particular teacher, um, Elena Kunikova. Uh, if Elena, if you're listening to this, I love you, but, um, (laughs) you're so (laughs) difficult to play for something. Um, old school Russian style ballet, like absolutely legendary. She's Mm. legendary. Tiny slower, tiny slower. Everything is slow. First 20 minutes, tiny slower. I mean, it's just like <laughs> slow after slow after slow. Yeah. But I'm telling you, this woman mm. who could be our grandmother would just take off across the floor in leaps mm-hmm. and all this stuff. But I would go into it knowing that at some point in this class, I would do something that would be wrong. And she would like make a face and make a little comment. And then I'd mm-hmm. feel like three inches tall. Inadequate. Yeah. And and I had such anxiety wrapped up around this. And, and she's not the only one. There are other people. Mm-hmm. And, and there are people that were mean too. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, I can't, I was so nervous about it. I'm like, this is an hour and a half class. I'm not getting mm-hmm. paid very much, but I am so nervous about this. And I was yeah. not enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And there was a shift that happened when I, I made this connection going, you know what? There's going to be a time when I play the wrong tempo or I'm going to play a song that mm-hmm. she doesn't like or I'm going to whatever it is, is it's not going to go well that's going to happen at yeah. some point mm-hmm. and it's stupid to think that I'm going to be perfect every single time yeah so it was almost like I had a coup like a get out of jail free card like a coupon in my head yeah. and every class I was like okay well she gets one and <laughs> and it, whenever that time was that she made a little comment or, or the, any of the other teachers, if something didn't go well, and mm-hmm. rather than beat myself up for it for the last hour of class, right. I would just mentally go, okay, well, that was my one. All right. Yeah. And then I would get <clears throat> over it. And by mm-hmm. making the decision to let myself say, it's not that serious. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to fire me. They're not going right. to throw a chair at me. Yeah. Right. It, it, it was... Well, they shouldn't, right? It, it, whew, yeah. They shouldn't, but let me tell you, I can tell stories that oh, does Jesus. happen, or at least it used to in the good old days. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's there's a bit of this gatekeeping and there's a bit of this imposter syndrome mm-hmm. that gets wrapped up in unless I am 100% perfect mm-hmm. 100% of the time. 
I should just give up. Right. Where does that even come from? Right. There are these weird phases of doing a thing that you love that at some point you reach like you really need people to acknowledge your value. Does that make sense? Mm. That there, there's this weird stage of like, because like there's a stage we talked about when you start and you're like, I'm so good at this. You know yeah, what I mean? I'm like, good. Look at I'm, me go. Look at me do this. Like for the equivalent of piano, I'm sure it's like, I hit this key and I get a noise. I hit two keys and they sound good together. You know, I and can do this. I, I can, can play this tune. Yes. Right, right. right. And, I, and I think that it is, we do have to be careful not to villainize this idea of wanting to do better. You know, because that definitely does like, like push us to make something that that resonates with other people other than ourselves. Because I have known, for instance, choreographers that just sit in this pit of self pleasure, and it's like going to those dance concerts are no fun either. You know, like yeah, you know, and not necessarily that this completely relates to the idea of someone yelling at you in a ballet class, but like there is something to be said of you have to know how your stuff lands. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 that's that's okay. You know, and if if this is a personal crafting thing and it's one hundred percent just for you, that's fine. Do that and like, but just acknowledge what's taking place. Acknowledge what you're valuing. And when you decide that you want to share your stuff, maybe that's the stage when you need the validation of other people. That that you start thinking, if I get any negative feedback, it's going to be devastating because I've decided to start sharing this. You know. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to me because that's actually the information that we want. You know, we actually want to know how people feel about the stuff that we're making. So, yeah, I guess those are two different things, though. I guess it's like because the gatekeeper thing isn't necessarily the... I guess, yeah, we're talking about a slightly different thing is that now you're thinking about your audience. Right. You know? Well, and it's like, we want to have that feedback, but what we really want is to have that positive feedback. Yeah. We want sh- I want you to like what I'm doing. I want, I want what I'm doing to be amazing. You've been listening to the Socially Distant Craft Club podcast. Today's special guest was Joe Shepard. I'd like to say a huge thank you to our monthly sponsors, Kyle and Nina Ott, Bradford Baldoff, and Katri Inkalainen. With your support, it makes it so much easier to make these episodes. So, thank you. Our next episode is going to be part two of my conversation with Joe Shepard. I didn't expect to have such a lengthy conversation with him, but I guess I should have known. He's just really interesting, and that always tends to happen. But I'm not going to make you wait for a long time. I'm going to release this uh, second part immediately after the first. So if you really want to binge, go for it. So that's it. Stick around for the next episode of the Socially Distant Craft Club podcast. And until next time, let's make something together.